Well, good morning. We have a whole bunch of young people on retreats this weekend, uh, high voltage, riptide encounter, and this is our retreat. We get to be here, and so good to have the choir back, the orchestra, wonderful to worship God together. We're in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, so open your Bibles to that passage. The title for this morning's message is Three Movements of Christ's Symphony for Unity. How many of you have played in a musical symphony? I don't see too many hands. A a musical symphony is a, a very elaborate composition. An elaborate instrumental composition, usually in, in three or more movements. It's written for an orchestra. It's usually of grand proportions, many varied elements. Within the symphony, there are movements, and each movement is a principal division. It kind of stands on its own with its own key tempo structure. I will never play in an orchestra here on earth. My mother wanted me to be a pianist, and so she enrolled me in piano classes. I studied piano for five years. After five years, my piano teacher said to me, Ray, you are really good at music theory. (laughs) Playing, not so much. My mother, she persisted. So she enrolled me in guitar lessons. I sang in choirs. So I do appreciate music, but I know for certain that I am not very gifted musically. So if I see life in the church as playing in an orchestra, will I always just sit in the audience and watch what's happening? How do you see yourself in the life of the church? Is it your role, is it my role to just sit back and watch? Or would God have something different for us? What is Christ's ultimate purpose for the church? And how might all of us be playing our instruments in the grand symphony written by Christ for us? In our text today, Paul appears to outline at least three movements in the symphonic life of the church, where all members of the orchestra, all members of Christ's body, are playing their instruments. And as they play together, they grow together toward that ultimate purpose, which Christ has for his people. Last week, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we discovered that we are one. We discovered that As we walk together, we are to be walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And we do that by living lives marked by three graces of the Spirit. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Those graces should mark our relationships. And we are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the body. Not just three efforts, make every effort. Paul says. And then he talks about a living foundation. There's a a solid foundation for our unity found in the three persons of the Trinity that are one now and forever, always have been one from all of eternity. So we have 
one spirit, one spirit that unites us into one body. We have the same Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. And we have one Father who is over all and in all, in us, his people. Beginning in verse 7, Paul begins to talk about Christ's gift to each one of us. He talks about how we might walk together in unity. And he emphasizes a number of times the ultimate purpose for which we live. The main point of this message summarized is, out of his fullness, Christ sovereignly graces us, his people, with spiritual gifts so that we might be equipped for service, the work of ministry, and that we might grow into the fullness of who he is. That is, that we might be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And that happens as we walk together. Let's read. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so the theme in these verses is Christ's giving. For example, in verse 7, grace was given. End of verse 7, Christ's gift. Verse 8, he gave gifts to men. Here we have, in the first movement to unity, Christ's provision, gifts given, given to every member of the body. When verse 7 talks about grace given to each member of the body, he, Paul's not talking about different levels of salvation. He's talking about us receiving different spiritual gifts, gifts given to each one. The good news is that we have all received spiritual gifts for service. You'll remember that Paul talks about us being recreated in Christ in chapter 2. That God has good works for us to do. And God has not only called us to do good works in his name, he has equipped us by the Holy Spirit for those gifts through spiritual gifting. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you surrendered your life to Christ you've received them as your Savior and Lord, then you have received the Holy Spirit and through the Spirit you have received spiritual gifts. You and I can't say, hey, when Christ distributed his gifts, I think he missed me. Gifts were given to others, but somehow God missed me and I just did not receive gifting. If we see each other that way, if we see ourselves that way, we don't see ourselves the way that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us as sons and daughters that he has given gifts to. We're not here just to 
attend services, and then every now and then make a financial donation. That's not our calling. It's good to be the body of Christ. It's good to gather. But God has so much more for us. What's Paul trying to say in verse 8? It, if you, when you read it the first time, it seems like he just inserts this quotation from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Why does he write those words? Well, remember that Paul is in a jail cell in Rome. And here he's meditating on Psalm 68. Psalm 68 was a psalm that was often recited, read in the synagogues at Pentecost. The imagery in Psalm 68 is of God ascending Mount Zion. He goes to his rightful dwelling place. As he ascends Mount Zion in triumphal procession, he leads captives in his train. The psalm, it calls the kingdoms of the earth to sing to God, to recognize that he reigns over the whole universe. And God from his dwelling place in Zion, he blesses his people. He strengthens them. He empowers them. So Paul, as he meditates on Psalm 68, he understands that it's fulfilled in Christ He applies it to Christ. You see, Christ descended from the highest heavens, came to earth, and lived among us. He suffered. He died. He was buried. But he did not remain in the grave. He rose. He ascended. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he now reigns supreme over all things. And from his place of authority, he gives gifts. This is stated in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when we read chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 8 to 10, the allusion is to Christ's triumph. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling supreme over all things. He is the head of the church. And from that place of authority, out of his fullness, he gives gifts. To men and women. In the first movement to unity, Christ ascended and distributed gifts to the body. Now, the New Testament actually contains five lists of spiritual gifts. You'll find these lists in Ephesians chapter 4 here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are two lists uh, Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter 4. In these letters of Paul, At least 20 gifts are named. They represent the way that Christ gifts his church. The lists are not complete. They're not exhaustive. But they help us understand how Christ gifts the church for service. Why is this gifting so critical? Well, Christ desires to fill the universe with his rule, with his presence. And his primary instrument, Christ's primary instrument 
For bringing the kingdom in our day is the church. We are his primary agent. That is why he gifts us for his purposes. Christ has given gifts to his people with the ultimate purpose of filling all things in Christ. That's where history is going. The day is coming when all things will be united in Christ. Christ will fill all things. Now we today are a foretaste of what is coming. Moving on to verses 11 through 16. In the verses 11 through 16, uh, if you read it in the original, it's just one long, beautiful, elaborate sentence, but we'll divide it into two movements for clarity. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. When I read verse 14, and I see Paul talking about children being tossed to and fro by the waves, being carried about by every wind of doctrine. What comes to mind is a movie that I watched, All is Lost. In the movie, there's an unnamed man in the Indian Ocean, and he awakens to find that his boat is taking on water. In the night, his boat collides with a wayward ship container. There's a hole ripped in the hull. He discovers that the navigational equipment, the communication systems are damaged by salt water. He climbs the mast to try and fix the antenna lead. And as he does that, he sees that there's a tropical storm coming in his direction. Soon he finds himself in the middle of that tropical storm. His boat is capsized. Then the boat turns upright again. The mast is broken off. More equipment is damaged. He abandons ship, gets in an inflatable life raft, and finds himself being carried by the wind and the waves. And to know how it ends, you'll have to watch the movie. (laughs) But is that the picture of life that God has for us. We, God's children, just being carried by the wind and the waves at the mercy of a violent storm. Has God made provision for us? Well, he has. The second movement to unity, verses 11 through 14, it begins with the provision of gifted servants. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And allow me to begin with a word of caution as I begin to talk about apostles and prophets. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul talks about apostles and prophets that laid a foundation for the church. In Ephesians 3 5, he talks about the mystery of Christ, the gospel. He talks about holy apostles and prophets that have received revelation by the Holy Spirit. We have that revelation recorded in the New Testament. That foundation, that apostolic foundation has been laid. 
And so if we talk about something of apostolic gifting being carried forward, something of prophetic gifting being carried forward, we are not talking about the authority of the early apostles and prophets. And we're certainly not talking about trying to give labels to ourselves, to give notoriety to ourselves, exalt ourselves. Paul does talk about being an apostle. He does talk about being a teacher. He talks about being a preacher, one who proclaims the word of God. Barnabas is listed among the prophets in Antioch, and then later when he's sent out, he's called an apostle. Timothy serves as a pastor. Later, he's he's asked to do the work of an evangelist by Paul. And so you see these terms being used in the scriptures, but it is not about the exaltation of a particular leader. I remember serving in one city, and in that city, uh, a pastor noticed that his church was growing, and so pastor wasn't good enough for him anymore. He started calling himself bishop. His church continued to grow. After a period of time, he began to call himself apostle. As the church continued to grow, he found that apostle just wasn't quite enough. So he referred to himself as super apostle. (laughs) And I thought, wow, we have a superhero in our city. You know, there was Batman in Gotham City, Superman in Metropolis, and here in my city we have super apostle. That is not what God intended when he gifted his church. The gifting of the body of Christ is for the equipping of the saints and the glory of Jesus himself. We'll come back to that. Who are the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers in our day? The word apostle, it just means a sent one or a messenger. And so on some level, if we embrace the Great Commission, if we do what Jesus has called us to do, and he has called all of us to make disciples... If we embrace the commission that Christ has given us, then all of us at some level are sent. Jesus said, John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are all on mission. We are all to live on mission, to be those sent ones. Some people apply this apostolic gifting just to missionaries, you know, cross-cultural missionaries, people that go to another country, that go to an unreached people group. I believe missionaries exercise this kind of apostolic gifting, but we should not restrict the definition to them. In the New Testament, sent ones are going. They do exercise great faith. They do take risks for the kingdom. They do believe God for miracles. They do go where no foundation has been laid. They are able to under the inspiration of the Spirit, read their culture and proclaim the gospel in words that people understand so that people can embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. But if we're talking about apostolic gifting, we're not talking about what was given to the early apostles in the early church. We're not talking about the laying of that biblical foundation. We're not talking about adding to the New Testament. We build on the foundation already laid. Jesus is the foundation of the church. The apostles and prophets revealed 
or sorry, communicated to us what was revealed to them about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Willingdon doesn't need apostles in the New Testament sense as I've just described. But we do need people of faith. We do need people of vision. We do need people that take risks for the kingdom. We do need people that believe God for miracles in our day. In what way might prophetic gifting remain for us today? Paul speaks about prophetic gifting extensively in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Someone with prophetic gifting speaks forth the word of God, speaks forth the word revealed by God. Paul encourages the church at Corinth to earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. Why would he encourage the church in that direction? Well, the prophetic word, the word from God, it encourages God's people. It consoles them. It builds them up. And so this prophetic gifting from the Holy Spirit is to be encouraged so that God's people will be strengthened. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and says, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. So if a prophetic word is given, it must be tested in light of Scripture. It must be discerned in community. The question is not whether prophetic gifting exists or not. The Scriptures give a firm foundation for it. The question is, how do we exercise it? How do we exercise it, practice it, so that the body of Christ might be strengthened, encouraged, built out, up? Then evangelists. Evangelists are people like Philip and Timothy. They proclaim the gospel. They listen closely to the promptings of the Spirit and are always seeking out new opportunities to share the message of Jesus with those that do not know Jesus. Evangelists make sure that the main thing remains the main thing. They're always asking us the question, are we leading people to faith? Do we just exist for ourselves or are we out there sharing the love of Jesus with others? Are we proclaiming the gospel? They want to see people come to Jesus. And then Paul talks about shepherds and teachers. And as he does that, in the original, the conjunction actually changes. And so you see that there's a close relationship between shepherds and teachers. And some would say that these giftings are housed within the same person, that we actually have teaching shepherds. That's what Paul's talking about. Well, shepherding and teaching are actually differing, different gifts. Shepherds are not always teachers. Teachers are not always shepherds. These giftings often walk hand in hand, but not always. Shepherds watch over. They protect and care for God's people. Shepherds, they pattern their ministry after the chief shepherd, Jesus. They carry a burden for God's people. They want to see the body of Christ united. When people stray from the body of Christ, they go after them. When they see people in the body of Christ hurting, they want to care for them. It's a shepherding heart. Teachers, they want to see God's people grounded in the word of God. They're always talking about the clear exposition of the scriptures. They want God's people to grow in spiritual maturity. They want God's people to know how to apply the word of God to their lives in a very practical way. In the church, I think we often have an easier time with shepherds and teachers than we do with visionaries and evangelists. 
Because visionaries and evangelists, they make us feel uncomfortable. They remind us of the larger mission of the church. They remind us of where we have not yet gone. They remind us of God's calling to go to the places that we have not gone. They urge us to move forward. We need visionaries. We need evangelists. We need to love the world the way Christ loved it. We actually need persons gifted in all five areas if we are to walk together in health. In summary, visionaries, they will always call us to embrace God's mission. Prophets, they will equip us to hear God's word and apply it to our lives, respond to God's voice. Evangelists, they will foster a sense of urgency to see the lost reached. Shepherds, they're going to make sure that God's people are cared for, that we're growing together in unity. And teachers will call us back to the word of God. They will ground us in the truth of God revealed through Scripture. Why does God give these gifted, these gifted servants to the church? Well, the purpose, it's described in verse 12. Three phrases that are connected. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So in the second movement to unity in verses 11 through 14, the immediate purpose is for the equipping of every member for service. The equipping of every member for service. Equip is actually a medical term to to set a bone. When the bones are dislocated, it's hard for the body to function well, right? So the gifted servants, those apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are there for the setting of the bones so that we as members of the body will discover our rightful place, will be well positioned, will understand what our spiritual gifting is and how we might walk in harmony with one another. One example of an equipping opportunity at Willingdon is Willingdon School of the Bible. You can sit under the teaching of gifted teachers You can grow deeper in your understanding of God's word and through that growth, mature in Christ. If you haven't signed up for a course, do that online or go to the resource center. Classes start this week. Another opportunity for equipping is the evangelistic training that's being offered at Willingdon in October. Three nights, three Tuesday nights, October 4th, 11th, and 18th. David McFarlane will be here. He's a gifted evangelist. He's an excellent trainer. You will not fall asleep, I guarantee it. And he, in a very natural way, will help you understand how you can share your faith story. Just a very natural way, tell your friends and and relatives about Jesus. So avail yourself of those equipping opportunities. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. Didn't say, I will build the ministry of one gifted leader. Or two gifted leaders. Or even five. He said, I'll build my church. Those that are gifted for ministry, they don't find their fulfillment in their own ministry growing. They find their fulfillment in others being gifted, seeing God's people mobilized for service, discovering what their gifting is, getting excited about being servants in the kingdom of God, 
realizing that the Spirit of God abides within them and is present to empower them to serve for God's glory. What's the purpose of the equipping? Well, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These three phrases, they're they're related. They describe what the ultimate goal is for God's people. To the unity of the faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in the second movement to unity, verses 11 through 14, the crescendo of the movement, it just proclaims that the ultimate purpose is the unity of the body in the fullness of Christ. Through the equipping of every member for service, as we serve together, we come to a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. We are to know Jesus Christ personally. We come to know Jesus as we serve him, as we carry out his ministry. As we minister to one another and we minister to a watching world. As we do that in faith, we come to see who Jesus is. We come to know him. We grow into his fullness. Christ's symphony cannot be played by one person. (laughs) No symphony can be played by one person. And certainly Christ's symphony written for his church cannot be played by one or two gifted servants. We will never know and experience the richness of who Jesus is if we don't participate in the work of ministry, the ministry of Christ's body. This movement, it ends with a bit of a warning. It gives us another reason for why we minister together. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the vision that Christ has for us is not of a string quartet on a sinking Titanic playing nearer my God to thee. Beautiful hymn. But the vision that Christ has for us is not a sinking cruise liner with people jumping off trying to find life rafts. That's not the vision Christ has for his body. In Christ's body, people are working together. They're discovering their spiritual gifting. They're they're being equipped for service. They work in harmony. And it's all for the glory of Christ. Christ uniting us. And his glory being proclaimed to the world around us. We enter the second movement of Christ's symphony so that we can avoid immaturity and instability. As you enter into service, if you embrace the gifting that God has given you and you start to serve Christ in the church, outside of the church, you'll discover that there are forces intent on dividing the church, destroying the church. That's a reality. We have a spiritual enemy. In verse 14, the contrast with the mature person and the fullness of Christ is stark. We are to understand apostolic teaching. We are to be grounded in the word of God, recorded in the scriptures, the word recorded, so that we will not be gullible, 
so that we will not be immature children tossed about by the wind and the waves of false teaching, by every fresh gust of teaching, by every theological fad. We are not to be a rudderless boat. We are not to be deceived by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, Paul, he had suffered shipwreck a number of times in his life. He had also observed shipwreck in the life of the church a number of times. Often shipwreck happens because attention is given to the deceitful schemes of the enemy. Lies. The most recent edition of The Economist, on the cover, it says, The Art of the Lie. In the article, it talks about the practice of politicians around the world today and how quite often they invent half-truths, they insinuate things about their opponents, they spin new narratives without any concern for accuracy because it is not about truth. It's about creating a feeling, a perception. And by the time that they are being challenged for what they have said, they've already moved on (laughs) to the next lie. The article ends with this statement, cast adrift on an ocean of lies, the people will have nothing to cling to. This is intolerable in the world of global politics, even more so in the life of the church. Now, thankfully, God has made provision. Paul goes on with the third movement, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Not in deceit, in love. The third movement to unity begins with God's grace. The provision is truth spoken in love. Again, the first words of 15, they offer a sharp contrast with verse 14. Speaking the truth set in opposition to deceitful schemes. In love, in opposition to craftiness. As Paul will write in chapter 6, if we have been grounded in the scriptures, if we have been equipped for service... If we have come to an understanding of who Jesus is, then when we face those wind that that those waves and the wind of false doctrine, we'll be able to stand firm in Christ. We'll be able to put on the belt of truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. We'll be able to hold up the shield of faith, faith in Jesus, and with that shield of faith in Jesus, we can thwart every fiery dart of the enemy we'll be able to pick up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We'll be able to resist the deceitful schemes of the enemy and stand firm for God's glory in the midst of the storm. As we speak the truth in love to one another, we mature as the body of Christ and we attain the ultimate goal. You see, the third movement to unity again repeats that ultimate goal, growth of the body into the likeness of Christ. As we actively speak the truth to one another, proclaim the word, confess the word to each other, 
We grow up into Christ in every way, the head of the body. And together, we become more and more like Jesus. As we speak the truth, not as a hammer to coerce people into a mold, but as we speak the truth in love, people are set free. And together, we are transformed into Christ's likeness. In the third movement to unity in verse 15, the process is the body being joined and building itself up in love. Who gives us life? Well, Jesus does. Jesus gives us life. He nourishes us. He strengthens us. He provides health. He gives us direction. He joins us together, holds us together, fits us together so that we might be a body working together in unity, building itself up in love. That phrase, in love, it occurs six times in Ephesians. The beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, in love. When we come to the end of this passage, verse 16, in love. When Paul prays for the church in Ephesians 3, it's so that the church might be rooted and grounded in love. All ministry is to be marked by love. Love is the mark of the body of Christ. When I think of someone that is marked by love, I, my thoughts often take me to an architect. An architect that lives in another town. He is not known to be a great expositor of the word of God, a preacher, a teacher. He's an architect who carries the word of Christ in his heart. He loves people. You will find him with the mayor of that town. You will find him with people on the margins of that town. When I was 18 years old and I was so far from Christ, I was in the hospital. He came to visit me and shared the love of Christ with me. He understands that he is a gifted servant, that Christ has gifted him for service. He doesn't stand behind a pulpit and preach, but he lives the gospel in everyday life, through relationships, through his work. How has God gifted you? All of you are gifted by the Holy Spirit. When we learn to play our instruments with the same gospel message in our hearts, each of us can play our role in the grand orchestration of our Lord and conductor, Jesus Christ. Jesus has gifted us with spiritual gifts. He has given gifted servants to the church. He has revealed his truth to us. When we are not holding together, we are no longer focused on Jesus. If we're being carried by the wind and the waves, it is because we have taken our eyes off of our Lord, Jesus. Jesus has given us all that we need for life and godliness in our generation. We can stand firm because God has graced us by his Spirit. He has given us his word. He has provided gifted servants. He has gifted each one of us with spiritual gifting so that we might live for Christ's glory wherever we are. Now, I'm not a pianist. And I will not be one in this life, no matter how much my mother prays. 
But God has called me, and I must walk in a manner worthy of my calling. God has called you just as much as he has called me. And you are called to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. God has gifted us by his spirit. The question is not whether we have been gifted or not. Do we want to discern the gifting that God has given us? Walk in it. Be equipped in it. Serve Christ. Allow the Holy Spirit to do in and through us more than we could ever ask or imagine. Do we want that? Do we want to embrace the mission that God has for us? You know, you may not play violin. You may not play cello or the oboe, but God has given you an instrument to play. We are all to make music together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. May God help us.